Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you experts from the media industry to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. As we've previously discussed on this show, the media industry is struggling at a time when there is a pressing need to transform businesses. It means that media companies need to think long and hard about where they invest their time and attention, and stave off the very real fear of missing out on the next new shiny product or trend. We had to think intentionally about this during the pandemic, when our way of working was turned upside down, business models were disrupted and jobs were on the line. Out of this period of uncertainty, however, have emerged good lessons, and we'll discuss many of those in this episode with an expert on the digital media world, James Hughes, the president and CEO of FIP, a global media company which specialises in providing training, events and research for the digital publishing space. Coming up, we will discuss the legacy of the pandemic on the digital media industry with one eye on the future and explore key questions such as, how do I decide which platforms matter? What revenue options have emerged? When should you double down on audio or video? And what should I do about this cookie-less future that I keep hearing so much about? All of those questions will be answered, so don't go anywhere. James, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Really, really glad to be here. Great to have you. Would you share a little known fact um, about yourself with our audience, please? Um, well, if people know me well, they'll probably know this, but a lot of people won't. I speak fluent Portuguese, which is not the most obvious language to speak, but <laughs> certainly something that uh, I'm very proud of. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Several questions come to mind, but I guess the obvious one would be why Portuguese? Why? <laughs> Everybody always asks why. I grew up there. So um, many of you will know we're having our, our Congress, our FIP Congress in June, June the 7th to the 9th in Portugal. Um, and I grew up actually in the town we're holding the Congress in. So it was a really nice chance for us to bring the event back, back home for me. Um, my father was stationed there for 15 years working for a Swiss company. And I grew up, I spent most of my formative years living in Portugal. And so I, I um, learned the language, have managed to keep it up. I've still got lots of friends there. And so uh, I, I, I do pretty well with it. Wow. So no language barriers when you go back? No, no, not at all. Let me kind of get on to the, the kind of key question of today, James, which is what will be the legacy of this pandemic on the digital publishing world and kind of thinking about the lessons to take forward into the future. I kind of separate this into two buckets of, you know, what were the fads that will eventually fade away and what are the mainstays that, that are useful? So maybe if we start with the, the fads, um, how, do you, how do you see those? Um, I suspect that one of the, and these are kind of not necessarily specific to publishing, but they might be macro things. I suspect that there's going to be a rebalancing. So it's not so much a fad, but more of a rebalancing of the work-life thing. I think people are realizing that um, humans are, are social animals and that we miss something by not being in office environments. And so a kind of return to the office for two or three days a week seems to be something that, that, that will emerge and will probably be quite healthy for all of us. So I don't know whether that's a fad or not. I mean, there were some interesting fads in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, do we, we all remember um, what was the name of that piece of software that we use, House Party? trying to replicate this the social world uh, virtually uh, and i think that's probably the biggest um fad that i would point to is i don't detect that there's a lot of future in virtual events and virtual social activities um uh, certainly our own personal experience and experience of others in our sector is that the enthusiasm for virtual events is fading uh, and that now that there's a chance to go back to in person 
that that's something that people will want to do. So I think there'll be a, always be a place for smaller things, smaller webinars, you know, opportunities to meet people who, or opportunities to hear from people you wouldn't be able to hear from in person because of geographical distance or whatever. But I think large scale events will go back to in person as quickly as possible. That's very interesting. Let me kind of go back to what you said about um, the fads as well. One of the things that sort of came and went very quickly was Clubhouse and then kind of in its in its absence kind of came other forms of social audio. You think about Twitter spaces, Facebook kind of had their model as well. Um, do you think that's here to stay as well, social audio specifically? I think those kind of things are are, are formats that the social platforms, I mean, Clubhouse to, to one side because it's a platform in and of itself. The big social platforms like to experiment with these kind of things and there have been many different iterations of these um, of these things over the last few years as ever they will try one until it sticks and when it sticks then everybody will use it for a while until they get bored of it I, I don't um, I kind of ignore those things to be honest because as a marketing tool they're quite useful for brands in our space so if you're you know if you're a, an entertainment publishing brand then sure you need to be on the latest you know and latest development from meta or twitter or tiktok or whatever it happens to be the latest format but actually, as a tool for driving commerce, they're pretty poor, most of them. And we should be always conscious of that. Always the same message we give out. The platforms don't do these things for your benefit. They do them for their own benefit. So as long as you keep that in mind, you know, they don't exist to serve you. They exist to serve themselves. And so long as you keep that in mind when you're going into one of those those new developments, then, then that's fine. Um, I think Clubhouse is a slightly different um, kettle of fish. It was an interesting model. Whether social audio is here to stay, I think the jury's still out on that. And I don't think you can necessarily say that just because it was a pandemic phenomenon, it's not something that's going to stick around. And the the example of that, or the lesson of that, is podcasts. You know, there was we're in the great boom of podcasting at the moment, but it's easy to forget this is the second boom of podcasting. There was a first boom of podcasting 15-odd years ago. Uh, and then podcasts sort of faded into the background. So the same thing might happen with social audio. It might be that this is an initial you know burst of activity people think about it a bit and then they come back to it later yeah what kind of a headache do you think that presents to news organizations media companies when they do see a a shiny feature coming out and then b the the clone products that kind of spring up afterwards as as to how much they kind of invest into them you know whether they need to be on them or not it's 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 a headache as all these platforms are because you have to make an investment to try these things out if you don't then you could be missing out on your on 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 your next audience to future audience but i think the lesson or the let's say the guiding principle that the economist has is the right one uh, the economist tends not to do these things unless they can have a clear path towards somebody buying a digital subscription uh, and, and that's a pretty good discipline to have is there a, a litmus test that works for most media organizations in that respect it's trial and error. I think you've got to try these things. You've got to see where the critical mass is. Um, there's no harm, I think, in sometimes being second or third. You don't always have to be first. Um, if you're second or third to a platform, then you can wait and see how other people have done it, which, you know, uh, I think for, a, for established media brands, there's no harm in doing that. Uh, but also taking a very close look at the, what the user journey is and the user experience within that platform to see whether there is a clear path towards, you know, driving people back to your brand. To use a kind of legacy world example, it's the difference between being a billboard and being a store, right? If you're a, a billboard by the side of the motorway, what are you for? You put your brand up there, people see it when they drive past, and then the, the brand lodges in the brain, and that's just awareness, you know, awareness of the fact that the brand exists. Yeah. If it's a store, then people can do all that stuff and transact with you. So just be clear about which one of those things these, these platforms are. Um, and 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 you know spend your money accordingly and that feels quite against the nature of journalists to be honest with you because we want to have that first movers advantage we want to be first but i think actually recently we've seen big news organizations 
be quite comfortable in, in being second to a platform. You know, it's only recently that BBC got onto TikTok. It's only very recently that the New York Times, you know, launched on Telegram, for example. There's no, basically, you're, you're saying, bide your time. Let these things play out sometimes. Yeah, let these things play out. See what's, a, you know, part of our job in the media industry is to pick the winners. Um, you know, you can't go onto every single platform. There aren't enough resources in the world to go onto every single platform in every single format. So inevitably, you've got to make some kind of choice. Um, one of the features of modern media business management is managing scarce resources. Our resources and in industry have never been scarcer than they are now, whether that's money or people or time. Mm -hmm. So we have to use that quite carefully. And, and, and there's no harm in saying, well, I'm going to use those scarce resources on platforms that I know work. Um, the New York Times on Telegram is a great example, I think. I mean, they've you know seen the benefit of that with the war in Ukraine because Telegram as a news distribution platform in Ukraine has been has been really important. So for them, it's not so much a marketing question; it's a journalism and, and a societal question, a responsibility to society question. And I think that's something that you know us who look at it from a business point of view always forget or need to just always remember that there's also another element here which is about getting journalism out to people who need to read it or for, for whom it's a, a you know a public service let's say uh, and sometimes that might be the purpose of the platform and that's perfectly fine you might not make any money from it it's just a way to make sure that people who need to know something can know something so to summarize we have seen a fair few flash in a pan platforms and features over the last two years clubhouse anyone and many clone products too. Twitter Spaces and Facebook Rooms stand out here. While there is a real FOMO and desire to jump on these bandwagons, it's a good idea to ask, does this new platform or feature either A, serve our business goals, or B, serve our audience as well as our editorial mission? We couldn't possibly talk about digital without considering which pandemic trends will become mainstays as well. James says that there are two types of organisations to consider with this question, legacy publishers and digital first publishers. Legacy publishers operating with both print, digital and physical event operations need to make more money from digital sources of revenue, such as e-commerce, whether that's sales of your own merchandise or content commerce, like getting a cut of products you write about and direct readers towards. As for purely digital publishers, the pandemic has exposed just how frail digital advertising is, which has been for the longest time the biggest contributor of income. They need to think about creating up to five buckets of revenue, where they might have only had two or three up until now. The big goal here, as James describes, is having five types of revenue sources contributing 20% of the total business income each. Think of it as five equal fifths. That way, you're insulated against future shocks to those revenue streams building business resilience. The past is a guide to the future. You know, we live in a period of immense instability. There are going to be more shocks of the kind that we've experienced. We've experienced in the last 20 years probably four pretty massive societal uh, or let's say uh, world-spanning crises from 9-11, the financial crisis, the, the pandemic, and now the war in Ukraine, all of which have had an enormous impact on our businesses. So to suggest that there aren't going to be any more is ridiculous. So this kind of uh, balancing of revenue means that when the next shock comes, if two of your revenue streams collapse for whatever reason, you've got other ones that can, can help you keep going. And that wasn't the case in the 20th century. I sense in that answer, there also needs to be an ability or to be kind of poised to move on another opportunity when it presents itself. You're saying there about, you know, how crises have created other forms of revenue. It's, it'll be a mistake to think there won't be more in the future. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think agility is probably the most important thing that a management team can have now in a, in a, in a media business. There's no sacred cows. You can't say that this is the way we do things. You've got to be flexible and, and, and try new things. Uh, whilst at the same time recognizing that your, your, your legacy business, your core business, is the thing that's providing the profit and enables you to do this. So balancing those two things, the old and the new or the existing and the potential, are, is a really important, a really important feature of management. How, how does that change how you tr- treat revenue streams who are who, which have classically been sacrosanct and critical to the business then? I think you treat all of your revenue streams in the same way. You look at their opportunity for growth, you look at their current track record of growth, and you act accordingly. If you've got a revenue stream that is declining, you have to decide whether that's a structural decline like advertising or whether it's merely a cyclical de- decline like uh, i don't know e-commerce if there was a you know if there was a posted postal strike or something then e-commerce might have a cyclical dis- decline and, and decide which it is uh, the classical example in a media business is the difference between print and, and digital for a publishing business now your print business is going to be declining uh, in most of its revenue streams you might have had a bounce with print subscriptions during the pandemic but in general your business is going to be declining so what do you do you manage that business for, for value you manage it for profit um, your digital businesses are going to be growing uh, or they should be growing so you manage those for growth you invest in them you take the profits from your legacy business and invest it into the new areas you know in, it used to be the case in magazines we we're always quick to launch and slow to close that was the, that was the cliche that we used to use you know Quick to open, slow to close. Quick to open, slow to close, exactly. Uh, I think in, in, in the digital world, you can be quick to open and you must be quick to close because if you're not, you can end up being wedded to products or revenue streams that are not particularly attractive. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, it comes back to that point again. It's agility. You've just got to be agile. It was very clear that there are some businesses for whom the digital subscription model is not going to work, for example. So if you try it and it doesn't work, then fine, move on to something else. You said you said kind of there about the even fifths of the of the business model. Mm. What are kind of the the big five uh, potential revenue streams that news organisations, mm. media companies can look at now? Well, you've you've got a legacy you've got a legacy um, uh, revenue stream which will be around print or linear television. Uh, you'll have a digital subscriptions revenue stream or paid content revenue stream. Let's say you'll have an e-commerce revenue stream. You'll have an advertising revenue stream, which has, a, of course, each of these has many, many different aspects to it. And then you, you want to have a fifth revenue stream, which is something uh, new and unexpected, or let's say, or innovative. And that might be education. It might be consulting. It might be live events, which is not particularly innovative, but certainly it could, could be the fifth one. Um, so, there, there, you know, we, we, have a, we publish a book every year called Innovation, in, um, uh, Innovation World Report, sorry, um, and that identifies lots of different business models that media companies can adopt. And, and we've identified at least 13 different ways that companies can make money. So there's no shortage of options out there as to how you can do this. It's just about picking the five that are right for your business. And am I right in saying that e-commerce really is kind of the one that it's trending and in vogue? And this is the one that a lot of media companies are looking at and finding out how to you know, make the most of that one. E-commerce is certainly one of the ones that is trending. And I think we should be clear about what the opportunity is around e-commerce. I think if you're a newspaper group, the e-commerce around uh, the the opportunity, sorry, around e-commerce is probably smaller than you think. Um, If you're a magazine group, it's probably bigger than you think. Uh, And and I almost detect that there's an inversion in the or let's say a polar opposite in terms of the opportunity around those two different types of media business. If you're a newspaper company, you've probably gone paid content first and now you're thinking about e-commerce. If you're a magazine company, you probably are going e-commerce first and then thinking about paid content. And that kind of matches the way that audience interact with those brands. 
Um, so I, th I think it's it's one of the two big opportunities. And most publishing and media businesses will end up having either e-commerce or paid content as a major revenue area. And they have to, otherwise they won't be around anymore. If you're um, a news organization, you're sat there not with five, you've got you know maybe a couple of revenue streams. How do you create more? How do you start to build out and create more revenue streams for yourself? Well, I think there's two two aspects to that. The first one is using your data. So looking at your user data, which you will have built up by having a paid content in a e-commerce business and using the insights from that to tell you what your audience is interested in. Um, it might be that they're interested in educational content, in which case you would think about launching an education business. It might be that they're interested in events, in which case you launch an events business, whatever it might be. Uh, and then the second thing I think comes to leadership. And one of, one of the things that we're seeing uh, is that businesses that have been successful in digital transformation really have a strong emphasis on the right kind of leadership, which is which is not top down, which is very much about empowering teams to to take chances and to to do things in a different way. It's about coaching, not leading, um, uh, and it's about you know th th this is all taken from a fantastic report that was written by Professor Lu Lucy Kung um, from the Reuters Institute for Journalism, uh, in which she talks about the idea of the the leader as a coach, but also as the leader as somebody who's not who's prepared to admit that they don't know things. Um, and that they should sit in a room full of people who are cleverer than them and be happy that they're the least knowledgeable and, and not the smartest person in the room, because that's the way, if you're a good leader, that you can draw the team out into new areas and new directions. I think, I think that's a really, a really valuable lesson. And it contrasts enormously with the way that the media business has been run for you know, 100 years, where you have a very strong chief, the editor-in-chief. We, we, we even put the word into our job titles, you know, editor-in-chief whatever it might be, the day of the chief is kind of over. It's now about empowering smart teams to do things uh, uh, and giving them the, the room to fail as well. Yeah, 100%. I think you could um, quite easily put both of those examples in the category of busting your own assumptions, not doing things blind, whether that's finding out more about what your audience wants or finding out more of how you think those beneath you could add to your um, offering, basically. Yeah, that's right. And there seems to be a kind of magical triangle emerging between your data team, your product development team, and your content creators, your journalists, that drives all of this stuff. Uh, and, and really, that interaction, if it's done well, happens without or sometimes despite senior management's involvement. You know. Sorry to interrupt, just a quick one from me and we'll get back to the episode. We'd love for you to join us for a day of expert panels and workshops at our next Digital Journalism Conference News Arrived. That's taking place on the 24th of May at News UK's stunning 17th floor building in London. Yes, you heard that right. It's a physical event. That means it's a great chance to network with your peers as well as take some wisdom back to your newsroom. Head over to newsrewired.com to secure your seat now and we'll see you there. The one thing, of course, that brings together data, product and content creators is content itself. You need content to generate data, to have something to offer on your product, whether that's an app or a website, and creators need to make it. As we think about staying relevant and keeping up with the times, audio and video are the two increasingly obvious choices for publishers. We're seeing that all the time, as many traditionally text-based news organisations have decided to switch up their offering and invest in both of these mediums. But there are pros and cons to both in the short and long term. When it comes to sizing up the opportunities for your media company and being intentional about strategy, it's important to understand this. We start with audio, which James says is a safe choice for publishers because there are fewer barriers to getting started. 
it is, as you say, very cheap and easy to get started with. Um, you know, here we are, you and I sat in our respective bedrooms recording a podcast. It's as easy as that. There's some equipment cost, but that's about it. I think the second advantage is that your journalists will be enthusiastic about it. It gives them the chance to build stories and tell stories in a new format. And in some cases, the stories that they're telling are more appropriately told in audio. So that that's a you know a big advantage for them. The third one is that you can now make money from audio. You know, podcasting, you can make money four four or five different ways. So it starts to tick your your revenue boxes, uh, your revenue diversification boxes. Um, and five, there is a, a five or four, whichever one we're on, there is a number of different ways you can distribute it now. So you don't rely on just the big platforms. You don't have to use Apple. You can use other people's distribution platforms to get your podcast out there. So I think it starts to tick a number of boxes in terms of it being something that you should certainly be doing. The disadvantage is that the space is becoming very crowded. So discoverability is, is, is becoming a real issue. Yeah, but it's 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 interesting you 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 raise that point it's it's also a case of um with audio at least it's it's easier to scale isn't it it's yeah. if you find your niche you find something that works you know you can find a lot of success in actually growing out your brand through audio absolutely and hits hits in audio are real hits you know you 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 can you can gain a lot of whatever your objective might be you can gain a lot of audience you can make a lot of money from a, a, a well-executed podcast. I think the jury's still out a little bit on voice assistant and voice assistant products because we're not really sure how we can make money from those. But you know, podcasting as a, as a, a kind of epitome of, of audio as a format, um, it feels like the right thing to do for most people. Mm. But it's, you know, the, the classic problem hasn't really gone away, which is, you know, the metrics around audio are leave something to be desired, shall we put it that way? Sure. And the irony of the digital age, right, is that this this digital format that we should be able to measure precisely and exactly, we can't um, because of uh, a combination of the way gatekeepers treat data and the way that we ourselves treat our audiences. So I think it's uh, I think it's uh, an issue. But measurement has been an issue in the media industry since the very first person printed the first book. So yeah. to take one example, it's it's difficult to know how audio converts into membership subscriptions, whatever have you. Does the move for the big players like Apple and Spotify give you give us some reason to think that might improve and change over time as they roll out you know subscriptions for news? Yeah, I mean, look, maybe it doesn't need to convert. That may that may not be a central part of your strategy for some people. Having a podcast as part of either a standalone subscription service or as a package service around a club offering could be important. You can use an element of your analytics packages, your Google, Google Analytics and the rest to see whether or not that's actually happening. But a podcast can also stand on its own as a, as a piece of journalism that makes money. You know, now that you have the opportunity to put programmatic advertising into podcasts and you can do all the kind of sponsorship and commercial deals around it, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with if advertising is one of your 20% uh, in your revenue mix for podcasting to be a, a, a big part of that and just it be ad funded perfectly fine. You know, I, I, I judge the, the Publisher Podcast Awards every year, um, and a, a very high percentage of those podcasts are ad-funded, uh, unashamedly, and it doesn't detract from the experience. No. Um, l- let me kind of put the question to you then about the same question to you on, on video, pros and cons. Video is a lot harder, I think, um, obviously because the production cost is a lot higher. Not all of your journalists will be suited to it or will want to do it. It's a bit more of a specialist format, I would say. Um, the other big problem with video is it's a lot harder to distribute and make money from. Uh, so you're tied to 
the whims of YouTube or Vimeo or Facebook or whoever it might be or Twitter to get your, your video out there and you aren't going to make a lot of money from that. Uh, we did do a big report on video recently that discovered that for those people who are at the top end of the kind of YouTube numbers, they are starting to make some decent money. But more importantly, if you've got the right kind of capability around video, you can start to extend that now into streaming services and, and deals with streaming services to actually make um, top line, high quality video content for a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or whoever it might be. So for, for publishers at the top end, that's certainly a, a possibility and certainly something they should be looking at. For the average Joe publisher in the street, I think video is still quite a hard proposition. Yeah. Uh, and again, you have to be absolutely clear about why you're doing it. If you're doing it because your journalists want to do it and your audience loves it and it builds warmth and good feeling for the brand and you can take the cost, then fine, do it. Um, but it's quite hard to get a transaction out of it, I would say. Yeah, you're you're right that the big money, the big deals are definitely in the <clears throat> excuse me streaming uh, platforms, but that feels off limits to yeah many many news organisations unless you're in the leagues of you know BuzzFeed, New York Times, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think it's probably a slightly bigger pool than you think. Um, there is a lot of intellectual property out there that that is attractive to those streaming platforms. And if you're able to marry that with some kind of production capability, particularly in a specialist genre, then you might find that there are there is money out there to be made. But it is certainly not for everybody. Um, and I think uh, there's still a suggestion that, yeah, like I said, for the average publisher, it's quite hard to see how you make money from it. Is it a level playing field on you know the likes of Facebook and Google for the smaller players as opposed to the big ones? Like ability to grow, ability to monetize, that kind of thing. No, no, I don't think it is. And I don't think they intend that it is either. I mean, I think, you know, if you've got deeper pockets, you will do better, certainly to begin with. Um, I mean, there is some benefit to having good organic reach. And there are a number of publishers who do that. But re realistically, those platforms, particularly Facebook, are designed to make you spend money on them in, on them in order to attract eyeballs. And that's and that's just the way you win. And that's the business model almost, you know. Yeah, that's that's a tough position, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's it's hard for smaller publishers to grow video. Is that it's you know nigh on impossible to do it organically, basically. That's right, and and if you want to do it inorganically, you have to spend a lot of money, and we don't have a lot of money all of us, no. um, uh, which kind of leads it to be something that not many of them do or do well, which is you know entirely entirely understandable. And and then you come kind of full circle. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I just got. I mean, this is not just true of video. I mean, this is true of digital advertising and content distribution more generally. I, I mean, I describe digital publishing sometimes as being like a maze, and whatever exit of the maze you get to, there's either Facebook or Google waiting there to greet you. Uh, and I think that's that's definitely the case. You know. You may have also heard plenty of talk about Google phasing out its third-party cookies in late 2023. This will introduce a new data tracking system of internet users, granting more privacy to website visitors and less information to publishers. Ad agencies as well will find it harder to provide personalised ads. Should this be ringing alarm bells though? Will this not give companies cold feet when it comes to advertising with online publishers? Far from it, says James. Firstly, this change will cut out a needless middleman. And secondly, this move is actually an opportunity for publishers of all sizes to generate their own first-party data, putting them in an ideal position to negotiate their data-centric deals on their own terms. Here's more on that. I wouldn't describe it as a challenge. I think it's a great opportunity. I think the end of cookies represent a really great opportunity for publishers. We 
after all, are the ones who should know the most about our audiences. We should be able to collect that data and understand that data better than anybody else. We did it for 100 years with print subscriptions. I don't know why we're suddenly getting nervous about doing it with digital. Those audiences are our audiences, by and large. Uh, we understand them. Uh, if we can describe them correctly and accurately, if we can interpret that data well, then we can create a really compelling package for either an advertiser to do business with us for, through advertising or a consumer to do business with us through paid content and e-commerce. And providing we can find the right route to market, actually start to end the dependence that we have, particularly on Facebook for a lot of this stuff. The op you know, there's a great opportunity to cut out the ad agency, who is a, who is a you know, pretty increasingly useless middleman in this entire process. Uh, if you're able to go to an advertiser, a, cr a critical partner for your business and say, look, you've been looking for 10 million people or 500,000 people, depending on who the advertiser is and what the sector is. And I can tell you precisely who they are and what their interests are and show you the depth of their engagement. And this is not some nebulous aggregation of audiences from across the web. These are people who deal directly with my company and with my brand. And consented to, by the way. And have consented to do so and understand how their data is being used. And by the way, we as the publisher are being a guardian of the interaction. So we're not going to sell them anything they don't want to be sold, because if, if we don't think it's right, we won't let that happen. Those are a lot of ticks. And that's got to result in a, in a, in a premium opportunity in terms of the pricing around that. Right. Would you give me a couple of like starting points? Because a number of the organizations I've spoken to about this just don't know even where to start putting in place some first-party data strategies. What do you kind of see as those first few steps into this foray? It's difficult. It's expensive. It's hard. I think you've just got to start somewhere. There are a number of, uh, you know, this comes back to your tech stack and the way and the way you, you organize your business. The two steps that you can take, the first one is go and find the software as a service solution that allows you to do this. There are a number of them out there. I won't uh, recommend any one in particular, uh, but you've got to take that kind of a technology agnostic view of saying, I must have a clear understanding of what I need for my business. I'll go out and do a proper sourcing process and find the right bit of kit that lets me do this. And you've got to invest some human resource in it. You've got to hire at least somebody, at least one person whose job it is to own and control that data strategy. And, and their job to begin with is pretty simple. The job is just collect. Don't worry about analyzing. Don't worry about using. Just collect. Just start the process of collection and make sure at least some of your data is going into a single pot. You can add the other bits. You know, there'll always be a bit of data out there in the organization that's hard to get and hard to put in the pot. You can come to that later. As long as you're gathering most of your data into a central place, that's the first step. Right. Start sowing the seeds. But then when do you know, when, when do you harvest, basically? You harvest when when you've built up enough of a pool. So it might be a year. It might be 18 months later. I think the average recommendation we hear is, is sort of two years. 18 months to two years so after you've done 18 months to two years worth of data collection you would then when you start to analyze that have enough of an idea of how those consumers are acting and what you're looking for if you think about digital subscriptions what you're looking for is what one of our speakers at a recent event called the whales the ones who are the real big fish in your mm -hmm. pond who interact with your brand regularly who are your biggest fans those are the ones who are the absolute first priority in terms of a transaction now you have to and I quite like Meredith's approach to this. You have to recognize the fact that they're loyal and you don't want to exploit that. So you don't want to go back to them and say, hey, Mr. Loyal Consumer, we're, not, we're going to, now going to charge you for all the stuff that you've been getting free. That's not really a good expression of loyalty. But hey, Mr. Consumer, here's a bunch of new content that we've created that only you can access if you pay this extra fee. That feels like quite a compelling proposition for, for those kind of fans, super fans of your organization, of your brand. Yeah, a very tailored um, approach there, I would add. Yeah, recognizing their loyalty, not 
um, penalizing them for their loyalty, but rewarding them for their loyalty. James, kind of final question to you from me would be, what will define who is successful over the next five years in sort of the digital publishing world? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, financial success will determine it more than anything else because it's all very well to talk about all these things, but if you go out of business in doing it, then that's then that's no good. I think the way that you achieve that, though, is to have a completely flexible and open approach. You know, there is no right or wrong, and therefore uh, you've got to try everything. I think the second thing is um, learning. You know, dedicating yourself and your organisation to a culture of learning. We see that this is a real gap at the moment. There isn't enough learning going on in the industry as a whole organizations that really make a point of ensuring that they're committed to allowing their teams to learn, uh, whether that's through professional and formal learning or just through trying stuff, I think is another critical success factor. And then the third one will be leadership. You know, there are quite simply good leadership teams and bad leadership teams in this industry. And the good leadership teams will be the ones that win out. Amazing. James, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast. It's been a real blast. Thanks for all your insights. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. There is so much to think about from this conversation, but I'm left thinking most about that triangle James talked about earlier, data, product, and content creators. All three of them need to be working in sync for you to future-proof your business, and we touched on all of them. Invest in a data acquisition strategy and give that time to grow. Prioritize platforms and products which contribute to your goals, and look after your content creators by creating a culture for them to experiment and flourish. But what do you think will define success in the digital media world in the next five years? You can DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at Journalism News. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode where we will talk to Gay Times about the double-edged sword that is social media. If you're a fan of the show, do leave us a review and a rating so others can discover these conversations for themselves. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.